From the newsrooms of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, this is Please Explain. I'm Samantha Selinger-Morris. It's Tuesday, January 16th. We're now more than 100 days into the war between Israel and Gaza. And as the suffering in Gaza continues to grow, with reports of famine and disease, so too does the fear that the conflict has gained a new and worrying momentum. Do the attacks last week by the United States and the United Kingdom on Houthi rebels in Yemen mean that we've passed a point of no return with regards to where this conflict could spread? Today, foreign affairs and national security correspondent Matthew Knott on how far this escalation could go. And Israel's latest challenge, defending itself against allegations of genocide in the International Court of Justice. So, Matt, late last week, the United States and Britain carried out some pretty significant military strikes against the Houthi rebels in Yemen. So can you start off by telling me who are the Houthi rebels and what have they been doing in the Red Sea over the past few months? The Houthi rebels are an armed militia force in Yemen that's been part of a long-running civil war there that's been going in a very heated way since uh, 2014. It's been an incredibly costly war in terms of human lives and, to be honest, probably undercovered in the West and in Australia. Uh, The Houthis are a very uh, anti-American, anti-Israel. They're a Shi'i political movement that represents about 30% of the Yemeni population. They're backed crucially by Iran, which is an important player in the Middle East. And the reason we're so interested in it now is that the Houthis are closely allied in many ways to Hamas in Gaza. Since October 7 and the war in Gaza, the way that the Houthis have been trying to assist Hamas and damage Israel and Israel's uh, allies is by a menacing, harassing ships passing through the crucial Red Sea trade corridor in that part of the world as a way to cause pain to Israel and uh, other nations that it sees as close to Israel. We have some significant breaking news to send to us as we have learned now that the U.S. and British military have launched strikes against targets in Yemen. It's munitions depots, radar systems and weapons production facilities all hit in strikes across the country, including in the capital, Sanaa. Okay, and the US and the UK, they've actually defended these strikes against the Houthi rebels. They issued drone and missile attacks on them. It's clear that this type of behaviour can't be met without a response. And they've said that they're legal under international law, saying that they'd actually warned for weeks of retaliation against the Houthis in Yemen. If these attacks continue, as they did yesterday, there will be consequences. So what was at stake here? This was a very big moment. Joe Biden and the British government didn't want to do this. They're aware that there are dangers here of escalating this conflict even further. And that's been the number one mission for Joe Biden particularly, is that you want to keep this conflict as contained as possible. But the Houthi attacks have gone on and on. There's a lot of pressure of saying... You know, we're, we're America, we're the, the most powerful military nation in the world and we're getting harassed by these rebel fighters. We need to show some strength of force. We need to try and deter these attacks. We need to actually 
take on the Houthis. So this was a big barrage of missile attacks on key Houthi bases, you know, radar sites in Yemen. And there was a second day and, and the US and UK have said we're willing to do more of this. The Houthis have said they're going to keep up their activities in the Red Sea and they're going to retaliate. In Sana'a, Yemen's capital, a huge rally against the airstrikes and in support of Palestinians filled the city's broadest boulevard. Yahya Sari, a Houthi military spokesman, said the Americans and British were responsible for criminal aggression, which would be answered with attacks on all hostile targets on land and sea. In many ways, this is an economic story, not just a military story. Depending on how you estimate it, the Red Sea corridor that the Houthis have been trying to blockade is about 12 to 15 percent of international seaborne trade. It's a very important route. And in recent weeks, freight rates for goods traveling from Asia to Europe have doubled. And the price of oil has gone up as a result of this. So this is very important. This year, inflation is supposed to be coming down. We know it very well here in Australia that there's been very high inflation that was supposed to be moderating this year. But now the impact that the Houthis are having in the Red Sea is throwing that into doubt. So it's having a big impact on the global economy. Australia is affected by that just like other nations. And so in that way, the Houthis have been successful at destabilizing the West and disrupting the global economy. And so just to clarify what the Houthis have actually done in the Red Sea, it's actually prompted lots of companies to actually take a long way around yes. and avoid the area. And it's added like a week or something onto yes. their deliveries. Is that much right? Much more expensive, much longer, the alternate route that you have to go. Okay. And so what are the implications of these US and UK strikes in Yemen? Because there's been this question, I think it's been hovering over the conflict since October, which is, is this going to escalate into a regional war? So does this signify that? It's definitely an escalation from what we've seen. From the very start of the war, to be honest, in Gaza, there have been regional elements. The Houthis started very early with their activities in the Red Sea. There's been a lot of activity and tension on the border between Israel and Lebanon, people getting evacuated on the Israeli side of the border. We saw around Christmas the supposed Israeli strikes on Hezbollah commanders in Lebanon. So this is in many ways already a regional conflict. The question is how far it goes. And I think the real key player here is Iran. What people don't want, including Iran and the United States, is some kind of direct confrontation between Iran and the United States or Iran and Israel, because that could quite easily become a very serious regional war. Some people say it would essentially become a world war with people picking their sides. The US, Israel, presumably Australia, UK side, or are you on the side of Iran, China, countries that are allied with them? And that's what everyone wants to avoid. It's not in anyone's interest right now, including Iran, to do that. But the fear is that some miscalculation, Things could get out of hand in the Red Sea, and that that's what you see there. Okay, and we know that Australia supported these attacks. So why has Australia actually gotten involved at all? Well, yes, uh, we supported the attacks. We didn't play a direct military role in these attacks. That was the US and UK. 
think the more cynical observers would say that our support is largely symbolic. The US is very keen for this to be seen as an international coalition, not just the US and the UK. Other nations have signed on to this as well, largely from the principles of freedom of navigation. You know, Australia is a trading nation. It's important for us that goods can pass freely throughout the world. We're very focused right now on our part of the world in the South China Sea. For what's happening in the Middle East also matters. So Australia declined informal requests by the US to send a warship to the region to try and deter the Houthis. Instead, we sent a six extra Defence Force personnel to the coalition military headquarters in Bahrain. And all that the government's told us, which isn't much, is that our defence personnel played a role in the headquarters supporting these strikes. We'll be right back. Matt, I want to turn now to the other pressing issue at the moment in this war, which is that Israel is currently defending its conduct against a charge of genocide in the International Court of Justice. So can you tell me more about that charge? How has South Africa made its case that Israel has committed genocide? This is a very serious, as you can imagine, and quite a specific charge about genocide. Genocide relates to the intention to try and wipe out a particular cultural, ethnic, linguistic group. It's not just about the amount of people who are being killed in a conflict. It's very much getting to the intention of the the people involved in the conflict. Now, this is moving very fast. At the end of December, South Africa lodged this case with the International Criminal Court accusing Israel of genocide. The court meets this morning to hear the state of Israel present its single round of oral argument on the request for the indication of provisional measures submitted by the Republic of South Africa. It's interesting to look at this historically in terms of the two countries involved. South Africa obviously had its long and very troubling period of apartheid. Tonight, a town meeting with Nelson Mandela. Like the Gaza Strip, the Golan Heights, and the West Bank, those territories should be returned to the Arab people. Many people say that what's happening in the West Bank and Gaza has been a form of apartheid in Israel. That's a charge that many human rights groups have lobbed. So South Africa says they feel a historically important role to try and stop what's happening in terms of Israel and Palestine, what's happening in Gaza. South Africa is here before this court in the Peace Palace. It has done what it could. It is doing what it can by initiating these proceedings. So they have lodged an 84-page application saying that Israel's War against Hamas in Gaza is not just self-defense after October 7. It's genocidal in character and is aimed at destroying Palestinians as a group. The first genocide in history where its victims are broadcasting their own destruction in real time in the desperate, so far vain hope that the world might do something. They point to specific statements by senior Israeli politicians, some of whom are in Benjamin Netanyahu's cabinet, talking about wanting to get rid of Palestinians from the area that they could move to other countries, some very dehumanizing language around uh, human animals. And they point to this as a sign that what Israel is doing is not just defending itself in the war. 
Okay, and what has Israel said in its own defense? Mm. Now, as I said, South Africa has a historical role here. Israel has played a very important role in the formation of the International Court of Justice and this uh, genocide convention, obviously after the Holocaust and the creation of the state of Israel, they were very invested in a genocide uh, never happening again. So this is very personal and very significant to them. Now, in past cases like this at the International Court of Justice, sometimes Israel will not participate. They'll say, we don't recognize the validity of this. We're just going to sit it out. It's very different this time. They're engaging really robustly with this case and with this protest because they know how serious it is. And in terms of international reputation, but also in terms of the conduct of the war itself. So they've brought in very serious, big legal hitters. They've chosen a former Supreme Court justice to act as their de facto judge. South Africa purports to come to this court in the lofty position of a guardian of the interest of humanity. But in delegitimizing Israel's 75-year existence... And they're saying that it's outrageous that they're being accused of genocide here. They're saying that they were attacked by Hamas on October 7. They're responding to that. And in its sweeping counterfactual description of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it seemed to erase both Jewish history and any Palestinian agency or responsibility. They point to things in terms of the warning they've given. We're going to attack particular areas, humanitarian corridors. Can you move from the north to the south? They're saying if they were trying to commit a genocide, this is not how they would go about it. Many people have tragically died in the war, but their aim is not to eliminate the Palestinian people in Gaza. So this is what the judges are going to have to decide. And so how likely is it that the court will actually make any orders? And if they do, are those orders actually enforceable? Mm. Now, on the underlying charge of genocide, which is extremely complicated, that's expected to take years to be resolved, to get a definitive judgment on does the court believe that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza. But importantly, South Africa has also applied for an interim verdict uh, in terms of the conduct of the war as it's happening right now and the way it's playing out. And that could only take weeks to come about. So they've called for Israel to suspend its military activities in Gaza, essentially, and the court is considering that. Now, Israel has signed up to this convention. In theory, it's binding. There's no way for the court to enforce its verdict. But everyone in this area seems to agree that if the court does find against Israel in this way, it would probably have to modify, perhaps in a quite substantial way, the way it's going about the war, that it just couldn't keep going as it is. It may not stop the war altogether, but uh, a finding by the court would be so serious that it would. Now, other nations have ignored the rulings of the court in the past, and, and Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, has made very clear that he's determined still to wipe Hamas out. But it would be a very serious uh, finding if the court told Israel to suspend or modify its military operations. Why do you think Israel would be likely to modify what it's doing currently? Is it because international pressure would be so great and international condemnation would be so great if they were to ignore it? Yes. And I, I think Israel doesn't want that. As, as I was saying, the whole founding of the state of Israel was as a response to a genocide by the Nazis. It's very sensitive for them to be accused of genocide. It, it's a very touchy subject for them. So they absolutely don't want that. I think it would have an impact on the United States as well, uh, which is Israel's crucial security partner, giving weapons. There, other issues would come up. 
Israel's always accusing the United Nations and multinational bodies of bias against it. Uh, and so there's talk about whether some of the judges on this panel are quote-unquote anti-Israel. So there would be pushback along those lines. But yes, the United States is the crucial player in terms of how Israel can navigate the war. And if Joe Biden has become increasingly frustrated with the way Netanyahu is going about the war, his patience is clearly running thin, and this would only add to that sense of frustration and sense that something's got to change in Gaza. Matt, thanks so much for your time. No worries at all. Today's episode of Please Explain was produced by Tammy Mills and Julia Carcatzel, with technical assistance by Chi Wong. Our executive producer is Ruby Schwartz. Please Explain is a production of The Age and City Morning Herald. If you enjoy the show and want more of our journalism, subscribe to our newspapers today. It's the best way to support what we do. Search The Age or smh.com.au forward slash subscribe. I'm Samantha Selinger-Morris. This is Please Explain. Thanks for listening.